Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Hi, I'm Beth, and I'll be reading you today's e-edition of the Cape Cod Times, dated Monday, November 20th. We start with the weather and the lottery. Today, a high of 41, a bit cooler than it's been, but plenty of sunshine. Tomorrow, high of 44, some sun starts to mix with some clouds, and Wednesday looks a little nasty. It's warmer with a high of 54, but it's very windy with periods of some rain, very heavy at times. Thursday clears out for Thanksgiving with a high of only 47, but be advised for strong winds, but it's mostly sunny. Here are some lottery numbers from the weekend. The midday drawing for the numbers game for Sunday, November 19th, this is the midday drawing, was 1480. The evening drawing was 7513. Mass cash from Sunday, 126. 2528 and the powerball from saturday was 3450 5161 67 powerball 20 in the news a 25 year old man will be arraigned in barnstable superior court on monday for his alleged role in the 2021 death of a six-week-old baby cape and islands district attorney robert galabois said sunday in a written statement Randy Patterson Gerber, formerly of Centerville, was indicted by a Barnstable County grand jury and faces a murder charge for the September 7, 2021 death. Barnstable police received a 911 call around 10.25 a.m. on or about September 7, 21, to report an unresponsive six-week-old baby, according to the statement. Upon arrival, officers found the infant unresponsive, discolored, and cool to the touch. CPR was performed on the infant on the way to Cape Cod Hospital in Hyannis. The baby later died after being flown to a Boston-area hospital, the statement said. Patterson Gerber was arrested by Dedham Police. Charges come from an ongoing investigation conducted by the Unsolved Homicide Unit of the Cape and Islands DA's office, Barnstable Police, and the Mass State Police Detective Unit assigned to the Cape and Islands DA's office. Second District Attorney Tara Coppola and Domestic Violence Unit Chief Ali Isaacs will prosecute the case. In this story from Provincetown, the Provincetown Police Department will deploy body-worn cameras on all police officers starting December 1st, which the town said adds another layer of transparency to law enforcement and brings them in line with the 2020 Mass Police Reform Law. Officers will not face disciplinary actions for policy violations in the first 90 days to give law enforcement personnel time to acclimate to the new technology, a statement released by the town said. The police and town manager's office could not be reached for comment to explain what such policy violations would entail. Select Board Member Eric Borg said the initiative is a step in the right direction for safety, accountability, and community policing. We want a police force that is familiar with the community and truly part of the community, Borg said. And so, to me, community policing just means that we're providing a little service that benefits all of us. 
Other police departments on the Cape, such as Wellfleet, Mashpee, and Yarmouth, have already implemented a body-worn camera policy. Such initiatives have proven to enhance public trust and reduce officer complaints, the province town statement said. The footage will not be monitored live. Instead, it will be uploaded at the end of an officer's shift for later use if need be. Officers will be told to inform subjects they are being recorded according to departmental policy. It's a really positive thing for Provincetown, Borg said. We want a police force that is truly here to protect and serve. And seeing as it's Thanksgiving week, here's this headline. Turkey dinner, 200 ticks a day. It's by Steve Heaslip of the Cape Cod Times. He writes, let's talk turkey. 2024 has been a good year for the bird. Both ones piled high in the grocery store freezer and the wild variety pecking their way around just about every Cape Cod neighborhood. For the shrink wrap ones awaiting a Thursday morning roasting, good news. USA Today reporter Eric Legata writes that prices are down compared to last year as the market recovers from inflation and limited production from avian influenza. Indeed, they are. This intrepid photojournalist was able to procure this year's holiday bird, a 24-pounder, at a local grocery chain for 47 cents a pound. Piling the rest of the big day supplies into the cart provided a bit more sticker shock, but worth it for a holiday whose main attraction is a table full of comfort food. Turkey time doesn't end at the grocery store in November. There is nothing like a good turkey photo as a timely image. Forty years ago, when on photo patrol, the sight of a wild turkey on the side of the road would produce a hard stop and quick dash with a long lens to make a photo. Back then, it was a rare sight. The state's website tells the story of mass wildlife biologists trapping 37 turkeys in New York State back in the 70s and releasing them in the Berkshires, a most successful effort. Today, it is rare to drive anywhere on the Cape and not see a couple of them. The bird Ben Franklin wanted to be our national bird appears quite content here. Looking prehistoric as they roost in trees at night, each morning they gather up their flocks, scratching through front lawns and woods. Wild Birds Unlimited says an adult bird may eat up to 200 ticks a day as they make their way through the suburbs. The local turkey clan that wanders my neighborhood has a showstopper. One of the birds is all white. It's been around for several years and can often be found along Route 6A, just east of the intersection with 132. Recently, it has been a part of my daily leaf removal operation, which usually starts just before dusk. The group is not tame, keeping their distance, but also doesn't seem bothered by an old guy with an old bedsheet and rake joining them in scratching the grass. They come within about 20 feet. I keep a camera handy. They are amenable to posing before growing bored with the process. As darkness settles in, they lumber into flight, preferring an old oak for their nighttime perch. I doubt they sense one of their farmyard relatives is thawing in my refrigerator, but we all get along, and it's nice to have company this time of year, which is what Thanksgiving is all about. And that was written by Steve Heaslip, who's a photographer for the Cape Cod Times. And in another holiday-related story, there's good news for Americans who plan to hit the roads for Thanksgiving. Gas prices are falling nationwide. The national average for a gallon of unleaded gas dropped Saturday to $3.32, the lowest since last February, according to AAA. Even in California, where prices are among the highest in the country, 
a gallon of unleaded has fallen to $5 per gallon from five sixty-three a month ago. Gas app company GasBuddy posted an even lower average price for California, $5 no more. California's average gas price has fallen to four ninety-six per gallon, the lowest since August. With, AA, with AAA predicting that 55.4 million Americans will travel at least 50 miles between Wednesday and November 26, with 49.1 million of them driving, they certainly can be thankful for the decline in gas prices. Average gas prices have plummeted in all 50 states in the weeks ahead of Thanksgiving. Um, Dahan, who is from the AAA organization, expects the national average price of gas to drop even further by the time Americans start to travel en masse. He forecasts $3.25 per gallon. Even so, that's still the fourth highest Thanksgiving pump price since 2013, Gas Buddy data shows. The lowest Thanksgiving gas prices were $2.05 in 2015. 211 in 2020 and 213 in 2016. The drop in gas prices is partly seasonal and partly due to lower oil prices. Gas is refined from oil, so the cost of crude determines about half the price of a gallon of gasoline. Fall also brings a less expensive winter blend gas that's formulated to help engines run in the cold. The switch to winter blend alone knocks off several cents per gallon, AAA says. Meantime, oil prices are hovering near the lowest level since July amid growing concerns of weak global demand as economies in Europe and China show signs of sluggishness. Weak economies produce less, which means they use less oil and gas to make and move people and products. However, if the war between Israel and Hamas in the Middle East widens or Saudi Arabia maintains its production cuts, oil prices could spike and bring gas along for the ride, analysts said. And here's the main front page story today, headline, Tight Control, How Massachusetts Officials Influenced an Independent Racial Profiling Study. When Massachusetts released its first taxpayer-funded report on racial profiling in two decades last year, the narrative was clear. Researchers found no support for patterns of racial disparity in traffic stops, state public safety officials wrote in a press release. But a USA Today network investigation by the Cape Cod Times, Worcester Telegram and Gazette, and USA Today raises serious questions about how the study was procured, influenced, and framed by staff at the state's public safety agency. It appears to not be consistent with legislative intent. Katie Naples-Mitchell, who's director of the Program in Criminal Justice Policy and Management at Harvard's Kennedy School, said of the agency's work on the report. Despite claiming the report was independent, the Executive Office of Public Safety and Security tightly controlled the researcher's work, a review of hundreds of emails reveals. The Public Safety Secretary and the Attorney General used the results of only one test of racial disparity, known as Veil of Darkness, to encourage, rather than order, three departments to collect additional data to probe potential bias. An expert who reviewed the study, conducted by researchers who noted no experience analyzing racial disparities in traffic stops on their application, told the U.S. Today Network the test's methodology was seriously flaw. flawed. 
although the 415-page report detailed inequities in other tests of racial disparity performed by the research team, state officials didn't mention those in the press release announcing its release. Among the findings, black and Hispanic drivers were more likely to receive a criminal citation and more likely to be arrested, and that non-white motorists were more likely to be searched. Governor Maura Healey, Attorney General, when the profiling report was released, declined repeated interview requests. Public Safety Secretary Terrence Reedy also declined interview requests. I would say it does not sound like an independent study, said Edward Flynn, who held Reedy's role in 2004, told reporters. After the last taxpayer-funded report on racial profiling way back in 2004, Flynn and then-Attorney General Thomas Riley ordered two-thirds of mass departments to collect demographic data for all drivers stopped, including those given verbal warnings, for one year. Police pilloried the study as political. Some departments ordered to collect verbal warning data complied, some didn't, and the data was never publicly released. Collecting data on verbal warnings, which accounts for an estimated 4 in 10 traffic stops, has never been a legal requirement for Massachusetts police, despite decades-old recommendations from anti-profiling advocates and a national police accreditation nonprofit. The language of the laws that prompted the 2004 and 2022 studies was similar. Neither law required police to routine collect data on verbal warnings after law enforcement actively opposed the mandate. Instead, both laws tasked the Executive Office of Public Safety and Security with hiring a third-party research team to produce a report on ticketed stops and to decide with the Attorney General whether the results showed a department had engaged in profile... Excuse me whether the results showed a department had engaged in racial or gender profiling. If so, they would order the department to collect data on every stop. Both laws said that data collection would only last a year and failed to specify what would happen to the information once collected. In 2019, lawmakers also left racial profiling, a lightning rod term, undefined. I would like to go on record today in calling on our Secretary of Public Safety to communicate clearly and in, in advance to the people of the Commonwealth what kind of disparities will constitute engaging in racial profiling, former State Senator Sonia Chang-Diaz, a Democrat from Boston, said on the day the 2019 bill passed. The Public Safety Agency, then led by Secretary Thomas Turco and Reedy, his undersecretary, never did so. The agency shared law enforcement's position against collecting data on all stops. An internal memo, which circulated during negotiations of the 2019 law, shows. When the agency released the report three years later, critics noted that the press release failed to mention many of the disparities, disparities researchers found. The report highlights in dozens of towns statistically significant racial disparities in the rates of criminal citations as well as searches and arrests. For example, in Worcester, the state's second largest city, the police department, currently under federal civil rights investigation, arrested Hispanic and black drivers who were cited at rates of 11.5 and 5% respectively, compared to just 2.5% of white drivers.
Naples Mitchell, the Harvard expert, said such disparities have been cited in other studies as evidence of discrimination. But state officials in 2022 only used results of a particular test, called Veil of Darkness, in their final consideration of whether to order follow-up data collection. That's according to Elaine Driscoll, an agency spokesperson. State officials barred the research team from speaking with reporters. Naples Mitchell was among many critics of their report. One document obtained by the USA Today Network showed agency staff discussed whether to respond to the allegation the report had suffered a whitewashing. The team of researchers the agency hired had never produced a study of racial disparities in traffic stops before, bid documents show. They were selected over two other teams that had, including one led by Northeastern's Jack McDivitt, a longtime expert in the field and a lead author of the 2004 study. The applicants' proposals were scored by state employees who worked for the Public Safety Agency for less than two years, payroll records show. They produced score sheets that contained errors, internal inconsistencies, and were at times cryptic in their brevity, said Brian O'Connell, who served for 12 years in the Mass Attorney General's bid unit. He reviewed the proposals at the USA Today Network's request. O'Donnell called one reviewer's perfect score of 100 for a research team from Salem State and Worcester State Universities, the group ultimately chosen to conduct the study, almost unnaturally high, and said the other teams appeared to be more qualified. All three reviewers gave Salem and Worcester State researchers higher scores for experience than the team led by McDivitt, who has conducted racial profiling studies for multiple states and the federal government. In their application, the Salem and Worcester State researchers wrote that at the beginning of their work, literature searches and reviews may be required related to the proposed study, such as best practices for motor vehicle stop analysis methodology. Northeastern's application was the only one of the three that cited the state's lack of data on verbal warnings as the most serious limitation in this data. In their final report, 14 months later, Salem and Worcester State researchers reached the same conclusion. Quote, it would be particularly important to have data on verbal warnings to examine potential racial disparities in who is given a verbal warning and who is cited, as these are often the violations that allow for the most discretion, they wrote. The chosen team, all of them professors with gang prevention research experience, Salem State's Gina Curcio and two from Worcester State, Joseph Gustafson and Francis Olive, were given close guidance and a tight deadline. Emails show researchers couldn't start their work in earnest until late March 2021, when state staff first shared the citation data set for analysis. The first deadline for a completed draft report was late April 2021, which would have given the team about a month. The deadline was repeatedly pushed back. In one email, a state staffer thanked researchers for changing their vacation and family plans to meet a July 2021 deadline. When they asked for background on the legislation they were working under, an agency staffer told researchers he was unable to get much information. Other government-funded anti-profiling programs, including California and Connecticut, work in consultation with an advisory group Composed of police, civil rights experts, community leaders, lawmakers, and other, others. 
but USA Today Network found no evidence the Massachusetts Public Safety Agency sought such a collaboration. The agency did hold three public meetings after the study's release, during which researchers were barred from answering questions. Agency officials had a conduit to police chief associations on staff. Former Hampton Police Chief and former President of the Mass Chiefs of Police Association, Jeff Farnsworth, hired in 2021 as a senior policy advisor. Farnsworth, as well as Turco, Reedy, and the agency's general counsel, Susan Terry, was invited to a meeting that a staffer told researchers would be an opportunity to meet some people and present your general research plan. Early drafts of a May 2021 presentation to state officials show researchers plan to emulate the nationally recognized anti-profiling program in Connecticut, which itself was inspired by McDivitt's work in 2004. Eleven days after the May 2021 meeting, where researchers presented their plan to top agency brass, a staffer conveyed a message from Terry. In a very constructive manner, Sue asked that your team stay away from the solution proposal piece and stay primarily focused on the analysis of the data, the state staffer wrote. She mentioned there are a couple of additional pieces of legislation and case law that are in play in terms of the state maintaining control of the solution. Terry alluded to a ruling from the state's highest court that aimed to make it easier for people to claim racial profiling in court and to a 2020 police reform law that defined profiling as differential treatment based on race, evidenced through statistically significant data. Agency staff declined to answer questions about the email, including what Terry meant by the state maintaining control of the situation. Driscoll, the agency spokesperson, asserted the researcher's work was independent. Some researchers consider the veil of darkness to be the gold standard of racial profiling tests, but it has many critics. People said the test limitations, as well as the limits of other tests, are why the program bases its ultimate findings on multiple tests, only one of which is the veil of darkness. The veil of darkness test eventually anchored the state press release announcing the report, which noted the statewide analysis found no support for patterns of racial disparity in traffic stops. The Massachusetts Traffic Stop Report deviates significantly from best practice, said Matthew Ross, a professor at both Northeastern University's School of Public Policy and Urban Affairs and its Department of Economics, who has conducted analysis of racial disparities in traffic stops for the U.S. Department of Justice and states, including Connecticut and Rhode Island. After reviewing the report's Veil of Darkness results, he said the authors appear to have cherry-picked results that show no or even reverse discrimination. One of the biggest issues, Ross stressed, is that researchers analyzed citations that were issued outside of what is known as the inter-twilight window, a time of day that is light in the summer and dark in the winter because of variations in sunset and daylight savings time. Using tickets issued during that time makes it more likely the same drivers, such as commuters, will be on the road, the only difference being visibility. Citations issued outside of that window should not be analyzed, Ross said, but the research team included them. I have never seen another study that does this, and it is simply wrong, Ross said. 
Other problems Ross identified, including basing the analysis on traffic citations rather than traffic stops, because more than one citation can be issued per stop, and that researchers failed to limit their analysis to certain types of moving violations. He found other problems, too, including a lack of checks and controls normally used by researchers conducting the test. Another limitation was a problem that can only be cured by the legislature. Researchers didn't have data on all traffic stops. At the request of the USA Today Network, which again included the Cape Cod Times, Ross conducted several Veil of Darkness tests using RMV ticket data obtained by reporters that contained more citations than the data set used by the state's researchers. Ross analyzed more than 600,000 traffic stops by individual mass police departments from 2020 to 2022 and identified 22 local departments and 11 state police troops with statistically significant veil of darkness disparities. Ross also conducted a statewide test using stops from a longer period, 2014 to 2022, and that test found that drivers of color were more likely to be stopped during daylight in Massachusetts. Ross broke it down by year and found highly significant racial disparities in six of the nine years. The conventional interpretation of these results is that it is indicative of potential discrimination by mass police against minority motorists, Ross said. Two years ahead of the 2022 study, the Public Safety Agency quietly released another report required by the 2019 law, an investigation into the feasibility of expanding the state's traffic stop data collection to track stops ending in verbal warnings. It's possible to do it, they found. The legislature has not followed up on that report or the 2022 racial profiling report that followed. Nearly two decades after taxpayer-funded researchers first recommend the state collect data on all stops, Massachusetts appears no closer to doing so, making the state ineligible for millions in federal funding used by other states to address bias in traffic enforcement, including Connecticut. Former State Representative Jonathan Hecht, now a member of a group focused on reforming the state legislature, said state lawmakers regularly fail to follow up on legislation they pass, to the state's detriment. Not only are we losing out on this money that Connecticut's getting, not only are we way behind other states in terms of really looking at this problem, but we spent years and years and years turning around on this issue to come up with something that's turned out to not even accomplish what it said it would, Heck said. When she became governor this year, Healy reappointed the public safety agency officials who oversaw the 2022 report. Her office repeatedly referred questions to the agency, and Healy herself declined to comment for this story, even when approached by reporters after giving a speech outside of the State House to commemorate Juneteenth. We will defend the truth and lead this nation forward in the fight against racism, Healy told assembled members of the state's Black and Latino Legislative Caucus, calling it a moral imperative to end racial disparities. That also means reckoning and recognizing what's happening here in our own state of Massachusetts. This report was compiled by Jeanette Hinkle, who's a Cape Cod Times staff writer, Bad Petrushen is a Worcester Telegram and Gazette staff writer, data reporters Dan Kimahill and Diane Zhang did the analysis for USA Today, 
and Kinga Barondi, Worcester Telegram and Gazette staff writer, all contributed to this report. This headline, Who Team Rescues 31 Babies in Gaza? The World Health Organization led a team into embattled Al-Shaifa Hospital on Sunday, rescuing 31 sick, premature babies and at least 16 health workers and other staff as Israel continued its devastating military campaign across northern Gaza. It was the second WHO-led mission to the hospital in as many days. On Saturday, WHO officials described the hospital as a death zone, with staffers struggling amid limited supplies of food, water, and power. WHO's Director General credited the Palestinian Red Crescent Society with conducting the evacuations under extremely intense and high-risk conditions. Muhammad Abu Salmaya, the director of Al-Shifa Hospital, told Al-Jazeera that all of the patients in the facility's intensive care unit have died. He told the outlet that some 7,000 people, including patients, staff, and civilians seeking shelter, remain in the facility without water or electricity. The babies were taken to the neonatal intensive care unit <clears throat> at a maternity hospital in southern Gaza, and planning is underway to transport the dozens of remaining hospital staff and critically ill patients when safe passage can be secured. The hospital has been under siege for weeks amid Israeli claims it was being used by Hamas to stash fighters and weaponry. Last Sunday, the hospital's head of plastic surgery said Israeli troops raided the surgical department, investigated staff and patients, and arrested one patient. The Israeli military did not immediately comment on the incident. Israel has been focused on crushing Hamas in Gaza since October 7th, when Hamas militants made the now infamous raid into Israeli border communities that left more than 1,200 Israelis dead and 240 captured and taken back to Gaza as hostages. The Gaza Health Ministry says Israel's ensuing military campaign has killed more than 11,000 Palestinians. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu denied reports that a deal for the release of dozens of hostages was imminent. He also denied reports that he rejected Hamas' offer to free all 40 child hostages and release most but not all mothers in return for a ceasefire. So we have reached the halfway point of our broadcast, and at this point we read today's obituaries. Franklin Singh, age 88, of South Yarmouth, died peacefully on November 15th, surrounded by his loving and devoted wife and family. Franklin was born in China in 1935 and came to the U.S. at age 12 when his father, Colonel Hansu Singh, was made a delegate to the United Nations. When the communist government replaced the nationalists in China, his father chose to remain in America with his family for better opportunities. Music played a large role in Franklin's life. He was a gifted vocalist with perfect pitch. As a teenager, he was noticed by the music department head of Wayland Baptist College while singing solos in church. He was offered a full scholarship to sing in their international choir and graduated <clears throat> in 1959 with a degree in music and business. He earned his Master of Music from Westminster Choir College in Princeton, New Jersey in 1961. He sang tenor with the St. Bartholomew's Church Choir in New York, the St. Peter's Church Choir in Morristown, New Jersey, the Summit Chorale and the Calgary Church Choir in Summit, New Jersey, and most recently the Chatham Chorale in Chatham from 2003 to 2016. 
Franklin earned his MBA from New York University in 1970 and worked as an investment analyst focused on the energy sector for 30 years. He worked at Chemical Bank and Alliance Capital in New York and then spent most of his career at First Fidelity Bank, where he thrived. Despite coming to America as an immigrant in the 40s without initially knowing more than a few English words, Franklin achieved great success during his career. In 1964, Franklin met his soulmate, Melanie Burke, in New York. They wed in 69, were married for 54 years, and rarely left each other's side. They built their home and life in New Vernon, New Jersey, where they raised four children. In retirement, Franklin would pack the car with his tools, and he and Melanie would drive to Boston, Philadelphia, Chicago, and Connecticut, where their children lived. He spearheaded countless projects, including building a new vegetable garden, painting a baby's room, installing new patios, and renovating kitchens. He enjoyed giving his time, talent, and experience to benefit his children whenever he could. Franklin and Melanie retired to Cape Cod in 2002 after enjoying wonderful family vacations there. Together, they joined the Dennis Yarmouth Newcomers Club, where Franklin held several leadership positions. They made many friends over huge wine-tasting parties and more intimate dinners. Franklin's generous spirit lives on forever in his adoring wife, Melanie, their children, Laura Sang and her husband, Trey, of Pennsylvania, Carrie DeVita and her husband, Larry, of Connecticut, Vicki Sang and her husband, Matt, of Chicago, and Andrew Singh and his wife, Emily, of Cohasset. They had 11 grandchildren. We will all miss him dearly. A celebration of his life will be held in the spring of 2024 in Cape Cod. And retired U.S. Chief Magistrate Judge Charles Brown Smartwood III, known to all as Brownie, died peacefully in Boston on November 16th. Brownie devoted his working career to public service in the law. He was employed by the Worcester Law Firm of Mountain Dearborn and Whiting, where he developed and maintained an active trial practice in both state and federal courts. In 1993, Brownie was appointed the first full-time U.S. magistrate judge assigned to the U.S. District Court in Worcester. He served in that position from 2005 to his retirement in 2006 from the federal court. He then went to work at JAMS in Boston as a mediator, arbitrator, and case evaluator. In 2009, Brownie was appointed by Governor Patrick as chairman of the Massachusetts State Ethics Commission, where he served until his term expired in 2013. Brownie was a member of many clubs in Worcester and Boston and a lifelong member of the Catuit Mosquito Yacht Club. Brownie's real home and heart were in Catuit, where he was the third generation of both his mother's and father's families to spend summers there and where he was an avid racer racer of Katuit skiffs and Wiano seniors. Katuit is where he discarded his bow tie and polished shoes in exchange for a faded orange bathing suit and no shoes at all. Brownie's idea of a quick sail could easily last eight hours. After his racing days were over, he spent more than 40 days a summer sailing his Swedish sloop, Half Main. Brownie didn't suffer fools, but he always had time for a friend in need, and the great judge Swartwood rarely judged. He was a brilliant conversationalist and storyteller. Dinners around the table could go on for hours and feel like minutes. After his retirement, he could be found most morning with his friends at the coop, most afternoons coercing anyone he could find to sail with him, and most evenings around the great dining table and could to it. He earned the name No-No to his grandchildren because he would shake his finger at them, admonishing, No, no. 
while they quickly learned that his bark was worse than his bite, the name stuck. Brownie is survived by his daughter, Helly, her husband, Malcolm Carley, and their three children, Sam and Sam's wife, Nikita, Allie, and Will, his son, Alexander, and his wife, Cindy, and their three children, Charlie, Sophie, and Wit, his son, Thayer, and his wife, Heather, and their twin sons, Augie and Ham, his longtime companion, Heidi Barassi, and his former wife, Judith Swartwood. Brownie's first wife, Gazy Curtis, died at age 29 and was the mother of his two oldest children. In lieu of flowers, donations in his memory can be made to the Association of the Katuit Mosquito Yacht Club. Back to the news in this story from Seattle. The suspicious letters sent to vote centers in government buildings in six states this month were undeniably scary, some containing traces of fentanyl or white powder, accompanied by not-so-veiled threats and dubious political symbols. Harkening back to the anthrax attacks that killed five people in 2001, the mailings are prompting elections officials already frustrated with ongoing harassment and threats to reach out to local police, fire, and health departments for help stocking up on the overdose reversal medication, naloxone. Even if there's little risk from incidental contact with the synthetic opioid, having the antidote on hand isn't a bad idea amid an addiction epidemic that is killing more than 100,000 people in the U.S. every year. And it can provide some assurance for stressed ballot workers, election managers say. My team is usually in the direct fire just because we're opening up thousands of millions of ballots, depending on the election, said Eldon Miller, who leads the ballot opening staff at King County Elections in Seattle, which stocked up on naloxone after receiving a fentanyl-laced letter in August. I always say to my team, your safety is my utmost importance. The letters were sent this month to vote centers or government buildings in six other states, Georgia, Nevada, California, Oregon, Washington, and Kansas. Some were intercepted before they arrived, but others were delivered, prompting evacuations and delaying vote counts in local elections. The FBI and U.S. Postal Inspection Service are investigating. Some of the letters featured an anti-fascist symbol, a progress pride flag, and a pentagram. While the symbols have sometimes been associated with leftist politics, they also have been used by conservative figures to label and stereotype the left. The sender's political leanings were unclear. Fentanyl, an opioid that can be 50 times as powerful as the same amount of heroin, is driving an overdose crisis as it's pressed into pills or mixed into other drugs. Briefly touching it cannot cause an overdose, and researchers found the risk of fatal overdose from accidental exposure is low, unlike with powdered anthrax that can float in the air and cause deadly infections when inhaled. Election workers across the country have been besieged by threats, harassment, and intimidation since former President Trump and his supporters began spreading false election claims after he lost the 2020 election. I hope we encourage people to not hurt election officials, said Ann Dover, the elections director in suburban Atlantis, Cherokee County, which did not receive a suspicious letter. A lot of people are leaving the field. It's not just threats of physical harm. There's a lot of emotional and psychological abuse. Dover reached out this month to fire department officials who provided Narcan, the nasal spray version of naloxone. 
Naloxone can be obtained over the counter and given to people of all ages. It does not harm people who do not have opioids in their system. Dover's office is also taking new precautions with mail, leaving it in a particular spot and having one person designated to open it, wearing gloves and masks. Lane County, Oregon, which received a suspicious letter, will provide naloxone kits and train election staff on administering it. I uh, seem to have forgotten this one extra obituary, which was not on the obit page. I'm sorry. Jim King, 86, from Brewster, passed away suddenly on November 9th. He was raised in Pennsylvania and was predeceased by his wife of 59 years, Carol J. King, and his sister, Mary Scatina, from Oakmont, Pennsylvania. Jim is survived by their three children, Carolia and Stuart Hayden of Granville, Mass., James and Andrea of Rochester, New York, and Theodore of Clifton Park, New York, along with six grandchildren. The couple traveled extensively and camped in all 49, in 49 states as well as most of Canada's provinces. Jim was a member of the Bruce, Brewster Sportsman Club, Nauset Newcomers, the Northside United Methodist Church, and the Brewster Council on Aging. He loved to go to the NASCAR races with his friends and cousins and to their Adirondack Mountains camp. Jim will be buried at the Massachusetts National Military Cemetery in Bourne. If you wish to make a donation in Jim's name, please consider the Brewster Conservation Trust. And here's some news in brief from around the nation and the world. Police in Arizona have determined that decomposed remains found in August 1992 in a remote desert area outside Phoenix were those of a missing 15-year-old, Melody Harrison. The Apache Junction Police Department announced Thursday that advancements in DNA testing helped them make the discovery 31 years after Harrison's disappearance in June 1992. Police said in a news release that the case soon went cold after the remains were found, and for decades the remains were known only as Apache Junction Jane Doe, who they believe was between 16 and 18. The case was revived in 2008 after Apache Junction Police investigator Stephanie Bourgeois took over, but DNA testing at that time was unsuccessful. A second test, comparing DNA from the likely family members, confirmed that Apache Junction Jane Doe was Harrison, police said. And a coin flip on Friday decided who would become mayor of a south-central North Carolina city when the two leading candidates were tied after all the ballots were tallied. Robert Burns and Bob Janicek each received 970 votes in the race to become mayor of Monroe. There had been five names on the November 7th ballot. Burns won the coin toss. At the coin toss, Janicek called heads, but the coin flip by an official election came up tails, leading to celebration from Burns supporters. The two men shook hands and hugged briefly. The board then voted to declare Burns the winner. And apartments will be available starting next year for Alaska lawmakers and staff in a building that the legislature was gifted, but pets will not be allowed, a committee that oversees legislative business decided Friday. The idea for housing stemmed from complaints that finding places for lawmakers and staff to stay particularly during summer special sessions when they're competing with tourists for accommodations, can be challenging. The policy adopted Friday would give priority for the departments 
uh, for the apartments to legislators based on seniority and then to legislative staff based on seniority. A draft of the policy proposed allowing cats and dogs and said any other animals would require approval. Senator Jesse Keel from Juneau said a number of legislators have expressed interest in being able to bring their pets with them to Juneau. And from London, a bottle of Scotch whiskey billed as the most sought after in the world sold Saturday for almost $2.7 million, an auction record for a bottle of wine or spirits. The Macallan Adami 1926 sold at Sotheby's in London after a bidding war between would-be buyers on the phone and in the room. Another bottle from the same cask was sold by Sotheby's in 2019 until Saturday a record for wine or spirits. The bottle sold Saturday is the first to have undergone reconditioning by the distillery ahead of auction. This included replacing the cork and applying new glue to the corners of the bottle labels. And Serena Williams and Ruby Bridges will be inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame next year, the Hall announced Thursday, adding the tennis great and civil rights icon to a previously announced list of women to be honored during Women's History Month in March. The 2024 inductee class has broken barriers, challenged the status quo, and left an impact on history, the Hall of Fame said in its announcement. Eight other honorees were announced in the spring, Williams and Bridges became available after the date and location of the ceremony were changed. Williams, 42, is a 23-time Grand Slam tennis champion who holds the record for the longest player ranked number one. She retired from tennis last year and earlier this month became the first athlete to win the Fashion Icon Award from the Council of Fashion Designers of America. Bridges, 69, was a six-year-old first grader when she became one of the first black students at racially segregated schools in New Orleans in 1960. In 1963, painter Norman Rockwell recreated the scene in the painting The Problem We All Live With. The Ruby Bridges Foundation, she established 24 years ago, promotes tolerance and change through education. Others in the class include Peggy McIntosh, 88, an activist known for her explorations of privilege, Kimberly Crenshaw, 63, who helped develop the academic concept of critical race theory, the idea that racism is systemic in the nation's institutions, and Judith Plaskow, 76, regarded as the first Jewish feminist theologian for calling out an absence of female perspectives in Jewish history. And here's today's Ask Carolyn uh, column with the headline, He Tires of the Constant Picking Up Involved with Husband's ADHD. The person writes, Hi, Carolyn. My hubby and I, both gay men, have been together over 20 years. He's diagnosed with ADHD and takes medication for it, which helps. The problem for me is that he is always late, can never get out of the door because of his distraction and forgetfulness, and creates a mess everywhere he goes. I've tried to help by creating a home for items like keys, wallets, phones, etc., but I serve as the finder of everything he misplaced. He also takes everything out and doesn't put it back, which I understand because he's easily distracted. But I'm reaching the point where I'm more frustrated than ever and can't deal with it very well, the constant picking up, cleaning, putting things away, or getting to me. I know he can't change, and he's a great husband in all other ways. 
Any strategies for me so I can reduce my stress about this? Signed, Stressed. And she writes, Dear Stressed, You've basically run into two walls. One, he will not become tidy or prompt. And two, you will not assume a lifetime of extra daily work without feeling resentful. So one potential answer that accounts for both walls is to, one, figure out roughly how much time you need every day to be the chaos tamer, and two, give him, by mutual agreement, some quality of life enhancing responsibility that you don't want, that aligns with his natural strengths, like errands or cooking. This responsibility can really be anything as long as it fits those basic criteria. It's something he can and will do. It improves your life. It requires similar effort to your chaos-taming sessions. What would also help is to name and contain the jobs you're suited to and stuck with. Say, two 15-minute straightenings up per day, which you limit by setting a timer so it doesn't feel like a constant life-eating slog. And here's some reader's thoughts on that. One, you might also get Bluetooth trackers for his keys and wallet so he can find them himself. Two, someone else says, I'm this person in my relationship. Over time, we've come up with practical strategies. Tracker tags or a keyless entry system and a secure hide key so I don't get locked out anymore. Three, sometimes I just don't really see mess, so my partner has learned to voice specific actions that are particularly annoying. Four, I can't agree enough with setting up short intervals of cleanup time. And five, cognitive behavioral therapy in addition to medication for specific strategies to combat the worst symptoms. Someone else wrote, I have one of these partners too. The deal breaker question is, what is he willing to do to alleviate his problems other than medication? Is he using tools like visual timers? Is he availing himself of ADHD workarounds? And someone else wrote, as someone with ADHD, I hear you. This may sound counterintuitive, but I suggest your partner take on more in other aspects of your life to balance his losing things. Your husband needs to own some tasks completely from planning to execution. And here's today's What to Watch column. On Netflix, it's called Stamped from the Beginning. And this film is based on the acclaimed 2016 book by Dr. Kendai, which chronicled the history of anti-black racist tropes and imagery and how they were developed and enshrined in American culture. Director Roger Ross Williams' documentary adaptation uses an innovative animation process that blends live action with the art of the era to illuminate figures and moments both well-known and obscure, historical and contemporary. On Fox at 8 p.m. tonight, Kitchen Nightmares, Gordon Ramsay steps in to help the owners of a Puerto Rican restaurant when the pressure becomes too much and the business is at risk of shutting its doors. On the History Channel, beginning at 8 p.m., it's Kennedy. It's the eight-part docu-series about the life of John F. Kennedy concludes with two back-to-back hour-long episodes. That's at 8 on the History Channel. And on NBC at 8, The Voice relived this season's best moments so far, from the blind auditions through the knockout rounds, including some hilarious, never-before-seen moments of the coaches. On AMC at 8.30 p.m., it's the movie Groundhog Day. It's been 30 years since we were first introduced to Puxatawney, Pennsylvania, thanks to the Bill Murray and Andy McDowell film Groundhog Day. 
You can celebrate the film's landmark anniversary by watching television weatherman Phil Connors remain stuck on February 2nd, a day he must live over and over again. At 9 p.m. on Fox, Special Forces World's Toughest Test, the recruits are taken to a remote mountain range where they're tasked with pulling sleds through two miles of dangerous terrain. And Rosalind Cotter died. She was born August 18, 1927, and she died yesterday. The Washington Chattering Class, often unsure what to make of outsiders, dubbed Rosalind Cotter the Steel Magnolia when she arrived as First Lady. A devout Baptist and mother of four, she was diminutive and outwardly shy, with a soft smile and softer southern accent. That was the Magnolia. She also was a force behind Jimmy Carter's rise from peanut farmer to winner of the 1976 presidential election. That was the steel. Yet that obvious, even trite moniker almost certainly undersold her role and impact across the Carters' early life, their one White House term, and their four decades afterwards as global humanitarians advocating peace, democracy, and the eradication of disease. Through more than 77 years of marriage until her death Sunday at the age of 96, Rosalind Carter was business and political partner, best friend, and closest confidant to the 39th president. A Georgia Democrat like her husband, she became, in her own right, a leading advocate for people with mental health conditions and family caregivers in American life. And she joined the former president as co-founder of the Carter Center, where they set a new standard for what couples can accomplish after what first couples can accomplish after yielding power. She was always eager to help his agenda, but she knew what she wanted to accomplish, said Kathy Cade, a White House advisor to the First Lady and later a Carter Center board member. Rosalind Carter talked often of her passion for politics. I love campaigning, she told the AP in 2021. She acknowledged how devastated she was when voters delivered a landslide rebuke in 1980. Kate said a larger purpose, though, undergirded the thrills and disappointments. She really wanted to use the influence she had to help people. Jimmy Carter biographer Jonathan Alter argues that only Eleanor Roosevelt and Hillary Clinton rival Rosalind Carter's influence as First Lady. The Carter's work beyond the White House, he says, sets her apart as having achieved one of the greatest political partnerships in American history. Cade called her old boss as pragmatic and astute, knowing when to lobby congressional brokers without her husband's prompting and when to hit the campaign trail alone. She did that for long stretches in 1980 when the president remained at the White House trying to free American hostages in Iran, something he managed only after losing to Ronald Reagan. I was in all the states, Rosalind Carter told the AP. I campaigned solid every day of the week. She flouted stereotypes of first ladies as hostesses and fashion mavens. She bought dresses off the rack and established an East Wing office with her own staff and initiatives, a push that culminated in the Mental Health Systems Act of 1980 to steer more federal money to treating mental health, though Reagan reversed course. At the Carter Center, she launched a fellowship for journalists to pursue better coverage of mental health issues. She attended cabinet meetings and testified before Congress. Even when fulfilling traditional responsibilities, she expanded the First Lady's role, helping to establish the regular music production still broadcast as public television's in-performance at the White House. 
she proceeded over the inaugural kennedy center honors prestigious annual awards that still recognize seminal contributions to american culture she hosted white house dinners but danced only with her husband her approach befuddled some washington observers there was still a woman's page in the newspaper cade recalled the reporters who were on the national scene didn't think it was their job to cover what she was doing she belonged on the woman's page and the woman's page folks had difficulty understanding what she was doing because she wasn't doing the more traditional first lady things grandson jason carter now carter center board member described her determination that never stopped she was physically small but the strongest most remarkably tough woman that you would ever hope to see including as jimmy carter's political enforcer she defended my grandfather in a lot of contexts including against democrats and others confronting in person or via telephone people she thought had damaged his cause there are certainly stories out there of her despite her reputation as quiet-spoken cursing a blue streak at folks who said bad things about my grandfather he added laughing as he imagined his grandmother threaten, threatening befuddled powers with a string of f-bombs the younger carter himself a one-time georgia state senator and unsuccessful candidate for governor called her the best politician in the family yet she always connected politics to policy and those policy outcomes to people's lives connections forged from her earliest years in the depression era deep deep south eleanor rosalind smith was born august eighteenth nineteen twenty seven in plains delivered by nurse lillian carter a neighbor miss lillian brought her son jimmy then almost three back to the smith home a few days later to meet the baby not long after james earl carter senior moved his family to a farm outside plains but the carter and smith children attended the same all-white schools in town years later rosalind and jimmy would quietly support integration and call for it more vocally at plains baptist church again rosalind carter died sunday november nineteenth so that's all the time i have for today this is your reader beth saying thanks for listening and thank you for your continued support of the audible local ledger